Hello, my name is Philip Miriton, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution, to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. Now, on last week's show, we had Richard Panic, the author of the book, The 4% Universe, Dark Matter, Dark Energy, and the Race to Discover the Rest of Reality. And I'd like to add here that a few days after recording that show, there was a news report that I think was worldwide. Uh, the Scientific American headline in their website was, Dark Matter Signal Possibly Registered on International Space Station. Uh, if you actually read the articles, I think the data is still a little uncertain, but the, but the reason I'm bringing this up uh, right at the beginning of this show is that these issues, such as dark matter, dark energy, and, and an issue or two that we'll be talking about in today's show with Stuart Clark, are front and center in the news. They are opening new doors to scientific discovery and making us wonder more about the mysteries of the universe which which brings me to a point that I made at the end of last week's show which is the famous quote from Lord Kelvin who was the who was a famous physicist chemist back in the UK in in the 1900s I'm sorry early 1900s late 8th, uh, 19th century he has that famous statement where he said that there is nothing new to be discovered in physics now all that remains is more and more precise measurements. And what we're seeing, I think, with dark energy, dark matter, the inflationary Big Bang, quantum theory, general relativity, is that is how wrong Lord Kelvin really was. Uh, mysteries remain in science, in cosmology, and today we're going to be talking about uh, one in particular that many people may not have heard about, and this is called the faint sun paradox. An article on this topic caught my attention in an issue of the New Scientist magazine. The, the title of the article was Under a Cold Sun. The question presented in that article was, how did life on Earth get started when our young planet should have been frozen and inhospitable? Our guest today is the author of that article, Stuart Clark, who is joining us from the United Kingdom. Now, before I introduce uh, Stuart, I'd like to just give, give you a little background on him. He's the former editor of the UK's best-selling astronomy magazine, Astronomy Now, and many other books, including The Sun Kings and Journey to the Stars and Deep Space, The Universe from the Beginning. He's, he's a regular voice on the BBC radio and lectures across the world, bringing astronomy to the general public. I also understand... Stuart, that you've worked on a series of science fiction books, which we'll talk about. But first of all, welcome to the show, Stuart. Thank you, Philip. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's a real pleasure. Well, well, it, I think I think it's uh, it's really good to have people like you on the show uh, who are probing these big questions, writing articles about them for the general public, and trying really to to get out there. 
uh, the mysteries of science and, 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 and to emphasize that this enterprise of science is still well on its way uh, to finding the ultimate answers. Now, I, I entitled this, this show The Mysteries in the Sky, and before we start talking about the faint sun paradox, I thought I'd ask you a little bit about your thoughts on this dark matter finding uh, or this mm. potential dark matter finding, and it, and first of all, let's let's just set the tone. Uh, perhaps uh, you could tell the listeners what dark matter is first, so those so, yes. so those who are not uh, you know reading the scientific magazines, but it, it is an important topic. So why don't you uh, take a shot at at, at really describing what mm-hmm. this dark matter is? Okay, so everywhere that astronomers look in the universe, pretty much beyond our solar system, we start to see uh, more movement than we can understand with just the normal understanding of gravity that we have. So it's as if something is pulling stars around the galaxy faster. Um, It's as if galaxies are pulling each other um, through space faster um, than we can presently understand. So there are two ways that you can uh, potentially solve this problem. One is that you can say, well, we clearly don't understand gravity and that the work of Newton and Einstein needs extending again into a new theoretical realm. Or you can say it's because we do understand gravity, but we haven't seen all the matter that there is in the universe. So there's more matter, which is generating more gravity, which is making things move faster uh, as we see them. And that's the the line down which most researchers have gone for the last 70 years or more. And so that's where these ideas of dark matter particles come from. It's the unseen matter and it's not atoms. It can't be atoms because we can get all the calculations for how much atoms there are in the universe correct. So we're pretty sure it can't be more atoms. Well, and I think it's a, it's important for folks to understand, as we discussed last week. But this is this is a rich topic, so so a little repetition is not going to hurt. But dark matter, there's something like five to six times uh, hypothesized dark matter. Mm, as there that, is yes, that's matter. right. To I mean, try and it's, get it's, these it's something that people have t- <laughs> that it's easy to forget. This is not this is not some kind of de minimis, you know wave or or uh, or or group of particles somewhere this is this is five times five six times as much stuff as we see out there right yes if if that's, that's exactly correct if the dark matter hypothesis is true and it we prove it then there is much more of the dark matter as you say five or six times more than ordinary matter and atoms so it becomes an ex, you know the dominant form of matter in the universe in fact yeah, which which is which is really an amazing topic in and of itself. Now, now with regard to this uh, finding or data collected uh, mm. by the, I think it's called the onboard alpha magnetic spectrometer, which is part of the, which is a actually a particle detector on the International Space Station. Uh, mm-hmm. What what uh, do you think? Uh, this this show. What what's your take on this on this finding from last week? Okay, so uh, so, so my take is slightly uh, contrarian to what has been uh, written about it in many places. 
in that the AMS experiment is an extremely valuable experiment. It's a, it's, um, a wonderful, wonderful piece of technology. And in the coming years, it will accumulate uh, enough particle detections to really nail this problem about whether it's seeing dark matter or not. Uh, last week, however, it simply confirmed an observation that had been taken with a European spacecraft called Pamela mm. and announced in 2008. And that was that there is this, uh, there's more antimatter coming from space than we perhaps expect there to be. And this antimatter can be a signature of dark matter uh, in certain uh, theoretical forms of dark matter. So it's, it, it's very speculative. AMS confirms that there is more uh, antimatter coming at us from space than we originally thought. Uh, but there are other ways to make this antimatter, not just dark matter. And one of the confusions, I think, for uh, theorists and observers to sort out is there are a couple of dark matter detection experiments around the world which are also hinting at possibly seeing dark matter. But if they're seeing it, then it's a different kind of dark matter than what AMS is potentially hinting at and Pamela before it. The mass ranges are very different. And it's very unclear to me how you can square that theoretically at the moment. So we're in a situation of needing much more data and a few more years in order to make progress. Yeah, it seems as if when when one of these scientific discoveries comes out, you know, it's hard it's hard to know what what the media is going to do to it, because because at least in this at least in this country, you know, there are some very good media outlets, but then there but then there then there is there are a few where they they'll rush to the headlines and it happened it happened with the god particle last summer but this this was i actually seen a couple articles where it said dark matter found mm -hmm. and of course that that was a bit it sounds like what we're saying here is that's a bit premature it's it's it's, ex it's extremely premature yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. well and and i think it's i think it's important though just in the big picture that uh, first of all this dark matter, as hypothesized, takes up five is five to t five to six times as much matter as normal matter, and that there are experiments around the world trying to detect what would probably be some kind of exotic form of matter that would fulfill the role of dark matter, but that the the investigation is continuing it's it's not as if we are in a lord kelvin situation where we could say okay it's done we found it we'll cross it off the checklist and we'll move on to the next paradox right i mean this this is that's correct this 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 is something that's in motion well i i think it's i think it's it, it's an important topic and it's it's really uh i think it underscores the exciting times we're living in where we have things like the Higgs boson, dark matter, dark energy, front and center, uh, where we have some of the big, some of the um, greatest minds uh, in in uh, in the world tr uh, addressing these deep problems. Now, we may segue back to dark matter and dark energy, but, but with regard to uh, your recent work. 
and 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 I'm going to ask you a little bit about your interest in the sun at some point here. Mm-hmm. But but there's something that it, it caught my attention uh, that this this thing called the faint young sun paradox, and and I I was really intrigued by it when I when I read it in, in New Scientist magazine and because I had not heard of it before. So so why don't you describe what the faint sun paradox is? Mm, certainly. It's it's pretty simple, in fact, in that when you look at the computer models for how stars age and how stars change their temperature as they grow older, you very quickly see that young stars are cooler than older stars. They change their temperature somewhat during the billions of years that they are uh, they are shining. And so when astronomers understood this with really the first computer models in the 1960s, they realized that if, if you were to go back and look um, throughout Earth's geological history, there would be a time when Earth wasn't warm enough for liquid water. It would just be a frozen uh, wasteland. And if you could find that evidence in the rocks, then you could put a constraint on our understanding of the behavior of the sun. However, when they started to look, um, when they sort of investigated the geology and what the geologists were uh, finding, they discovered that the oldest rocks on Earth from uh, four, over 4 billion years ago, with the origin of the Earth dated at around about 4.6 billion years ago, the oldest rocks that they could find were showing clear evidence of having been laid down in, in watery environments. And more than that, there are uh, microbial fossils that date from over three and a half billion years ago as well. So clearly, the Earth has been habitable for the vast, vast majority of its lifetime, with life itself arising very close to the actual beginning of uh, the Earth as well. So... There's the paradox right there. The astrophysics tells you that the sun wasn't warm enough for there to be liquid water on the Earth, and yet the geological evidence tells you um, that there was. And everywhere you look, uh, when you look at the astrophysics, when you look at other stars and date other stars and uh, try and feed them into the calculations as well, they all tell you that the astrophysics is correct. And just as certainly the geology seems to be correct as well. So we've got to solve that paradox somehow. Well, it it, seem, it seems as if just just from just from logic. I mean, with without even looking at at the data right off the bat, you would think that uh, the Earth would get warmer with time. Would start off cold and get warmer. And and I guess that would relate to the astrophysics. With regard to the way a star uh, uh, begins, a star begins is is the logic that the sun would would eventually get hotter. Yes, the sun, because the sun is a fusion reactor, so it's 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 making its light and it's making its energy because it's fusing hydrogen into helium, and that means that in the very heart of the sun, where this reaction is taking place chemical composition is changing constantly with time and as the helium builds up uh, in the 
in the center there, it in fact reduces a little bit the pressure of the, the radiation leaving the sun. And that means that the sun, uh, gravity can pull it together a bit more, which raises the temperature in the center. And that generates more energy in that way. And the sun becomes just gradually hotter as it goes through what it's called its main sequence lifetime. Well, it, and, and I, I'm not sure why this hasn't been publicized more, perhaps because th those of us who don't know about it, including me, have not read the right books or magazines. But, it, but there is a real mismatch, it appears, between what... Uh, the theories say about the temperature on the Earth and what the geological evidence shows, right? I mean, that's there is to an extent, yes, uh, that's true. Uh, if you are a climatologist or a sort of a, a, a paleo um, climatologist that's studying this, most of those would feel comfortable with saying that the thing that that doesn't take into account is the role of the atmosphere. And the atmosphere, as we know, can increase the temperature of the planet through the greenhouse effect. So we certainly know that the early Earth had uh, a, a very different composition in its atmosphere. So one route to possibly solving this problem is, uh, was the composition of the early atmosphere of Earth, did that give a sufficiently large greenhouse effect to keep things warm? Uh, and there are other solutions um, as well, but that's the sort of that's the starting point, the sort of most obvious one. Yes, and this is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're talking with Stuart Clark from the United Kingdom about his uh, article under a cold sun in New Scientist magazine, and we're talking about the potential solutions to something called the faint sun paradox. Now you mentioned one solution being atmospheric conditions that sound a little bit like uh, global warming uh, discussions but what 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 do you think is the leading solution to the faint sun paradox I think it would come down to those the, the, its atmosphere and it's a greenhouse effect so it's kind of like a natural global warming situation that we had uh, but one of the problems that the that the modelers have in doing this work is that the simulations of the climate are still not very precise, certainly not for the early uh, climates of the Earth. And at the moment, there's an awful lot of effort that's going into building different computer models of the early Earth's climate, and so that those can be compared with one another to see if they start to converge on uh, an actual solution to this problem. The, the faint sun paradox, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's, if it's similar to other kinds of fine-tuning issues, uh, among them being uh, the value of dark energy. You know, as, mm. you know, for, as you've, you've studied dark energy, and we talked about it on last week's show, dark energy being this unknown uh, turbo boost force that is, in, that is increasing the acceleration or is accelerating the expansion of the universe. And there's some people that I mentioned last week, uh, such as Steven Weinberg, 
who believes that you need essentially a multiverse in order to describe or explain the value of dark energy. And I'm just wondering whether whether there is something similar here to the faint sun paradox, whether, in other words, whether there needs to be unique conditions mm. on the Earth in mm. order to overcome uh, the astrophysicist theories that the Earth should have started colder than it than apparently yeah. did. Yeah, so I initially um, was thinking along those lines as well, and the more I was looking into this and trying to get the right balance of the atmospheric gases so that you get the right greenhouse effect, but you don't destroy or contradict, I should say, the geological evidence that you have about the kind of uh, density of carbon dioxide that you had in the atmosphere billions of years ago. And I started to think along those lines that this was this whatever the solution was, it had to be extremely finely tuned. And if anything that is extremely finely tuned uh, makes it highly unlikely that it's reproducible elsewhere. So this would maybe suggest that we live in a very rare um, environment in right. the universe and that Earth-like worlds are extremely rare. However... Uh, by the end of the article, and by the time I had talked to many, many different scientists, all of whom have uh, potential ways of solving this problem, either by the Earth's orbit moving naturally as the planets settle down into their modern configuration, or just uh, other um, solutions as well. Uh, there is a huge number of ways that you can go to try and solve this problem. And that means that perhaps uh, that it opens everything up completely, that these solutions will be found or just happen, I should say, naturally uh, throughout the universe on many different planets. Yeah, and, and it's hard to argue with the proposition that it would be better, and uh, now I'm speaking for myself, it'd be better to find solutions to some of these paradoxes, such as the faint, Young Sun Paradox, the value of dark energy, the explosive force of the Big Bang, all sorts of other fine-tuning um, elements out there, with, using natural means, using theories, rather than the multiverse. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the multiverse, and for those who have not heard of the multiverse, it's essentially, I guess it's tied into the anthropic principle, but it's essentially saying, in some ways that the conditions on in our universe that allow for life to exist are so unique that that there has to be multiple universes out there now i didn't say that the right way because some people would say that quantum theory and the inflationary model and maybe string theory support the proposition that there's actually uh you know trillions upon trillions of other universes out there but but the point is is that is that what's happening I think Stuart in cosmology right now is that when a lot of these uh, folks are faced with a fine tuning problem they either have there's either three choices you either resort to religion which most people don't do you you continue to look for a natural explanation or you you uh, join the multiverse bandwagon. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I think that's right. If you, 
if you go down this route of saying that there are many different universes, so we sh an infinite number of universes, so we shouldn't be surprised that there is at least this one which has the conditions necessary for life. Um, that to me sounds like a little bit of a cop out, uh, because for for one thing, we have not even begun really searching for life on other worlds, and so you can't say what the conditions for life are. We may find worlds completely different from the Earth, which we would have just said there's no possibility of life there, and yet there'll be life. Um, we don't know whether that life will be based on the same sort of chemistry in the sense of DNA, water, carbon, and all of that. So it, it still seems somewhat premature to me to start hypothesizing multiverse um, solutions to these problems uh, even though I, I certainly understand where uh, why it seems reasonable to believe that there could be other universes when you try to interpret what quantum theory is all about and what that's telling you yeah and and just to show you sometimes how close science fiction is to science theory I think that, that, you know, the notion of a multiverse, and I don't know whether you've researched it, but I have a funny feeling that there are science fiction novels, stories, talking about alternate universes out there that predated uh, the scientific notion of multiverses. But, but what I, what I have a pro but, but I think it's important for folks to understand that this notion of a multiverse is really almost orthodox science right now. I mean, Stephen Hawking uh, in the book The Grand Design, that's really what that book is about. And then uh, Brian Greene, another well-known, very successful science author. His book, uh, I think it's called Hidden Reality. It's about all the different arguments for the multiverse. So this is not some kind of fringe theory. It's, it's, really, it's really being sort of supported by some of the leading scientists in the world uh, and, and it's so that that that's re which is remarkable to me because I would agree with you I think it's a cop-out I do I do think it's like a, it's like a big it's a big fat placeholder that's what I think it is well that, and that may be what it is and I, I suspect that these um, these scientists that are looking at it now uh, if they were to if if someone somewhere you know came up with trustworthy observations that they could really work with that uh, showed that this wasn't the way to go that the multiverse was not true and all of that i'm sure that they would uh, you know go towards the data as it were right. uh, it's just where we are at the moment we need um, some we need to, we need some big idea some new way of thinking to get us out of you know, we think down traditional paths. We try and solve problems first by thinking down traditional paths. When we can't think down, or when we can't get make any more progress, then we invent from what we know. So we invent new particles, or we invent new energy fields, or in this case, we invent whole new universes. Because those are those are easy in a way to put into your equations you know what the, the what the parameters are and what the numbers are so and how to incorporate those kind of things so that's what you do but okay and it's 
sometimes that works and works spectacularly. For most of the 20th century, uh, hypothesizing new particles and working out their mathematical properties and then going and finding them with experiments worked spectacularly well. Uh, that's not been the case so much for dark matter yet, um, which may be found tomorrow, um, or it may just be wrong completely, in which case you need a completely original thinker to turn everything we think we know on its head and say, look in this direction, and everything collapses into certainty. And that's the kind of thing that Albert Einstein did. It's the kind of thing that Isaac Newton did. Um, so that's the sort of level um, that, uh, that, that we need if we're going to change everything. And I, and I, I think that was, that was really well said, and I, I, I completely agree. And that's, that's what, folks, what I think is what makes our times exciting, is that we could be approaching what I would call a new theoretical model because because when you put some of these paradoxes together and the, the the classic example to me is the is the conflict between gravity and quantum theory or general relativity and quantum theory uh, which if we got into the details it's, it, it might be too much but the point is is that those two edifices of modern physics are incompatible and and that's and that leads to string theory right and, and uh, that mm -hmm. leads to the possibility that string theory might be right but but the 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 real problem that i'm having right now in in modern science is that there's so many of these misfits going on it's sort of like uh square holes in in round pegs or round pegs and square holes whatever the the metaphor is there's a mm -hmm. lot of sort of of building these contraptions with particles theories and but the whole thing doesn't isn't really smooth it's not it's not seamless and when you add something like the faint young sun paradox onto it i don't know it seems to me that's an independent issue it's mm. it's, it's, it's it's not related to quantum theory general relativity i mean it seems like an independent problem absolutely so, i mean it, that's that that's uh it's a paradox between you know astrophysics and uh, geology and paleoclimate, and it's just something that we have to work on. Uh, I would say that it, in terms of thinking about larger uh, revolutions in thought, you know, we we do the best we can. Science does the best it can within the frameworks of the day. But this goes back completely to what you were talking about with the Lord Kelvin quote earlier where he said, there is nothing left to science but more and more precise measurement. That's all that science is ever about. Because as soon as you can measure with more precision, you can test your theories better than ever before. And these theories are only ever likely to be approximations to the truth. And so as you advance with more and more sophisticated equipment, you see where the gaps are. And what might start out as something in a fifth or sixth decimal place, by the time you have got an instrument that's working well to the eighth or ninth decimal place, then it is a glaring error that needs sorting out. Right. And of course, if you've got an instrument that works at those precisions, um, then you know how to manipulate nature at that level as well. And so that leads you through these new discoveries to new technologies. Yeah, and, 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 and in many ways, that is what science, as you say, that is what science is about, testing hypotheses.
And, and, Absolutely. And in many cases, we need, I mean, and, and we need better, bigger hypotheses. <laughs> that's, that's, sort of, that's sort of the problem. We need a grander, a grander uh, way of looking at things. There's the, well, what we really need is testable hypotheses. Yes. Yeah. So we have a situation at the moment where string theories are trying to put uh, the quantum universe and general relativity together, and they're they're, they're looking pretty good at ex at explaining certain things, but things that we already have explanations for. They're not predicting new phenomena, testable things, and that's the that's the the cul-de-sac, if you like, that we're in at the moment. Yeah. We need to break out of that and find something testable, um, preferably pre you know, predict it in advance uh, with these new ideas. That's great. This is Philip Merton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're talking with Stuart Clark from the UK about the faint sun paradox. And I'm going to pivot a little bit because you mentioned... Uh, about this this uh, this issue about uh, what the conditions for life might be, and that always raises this fascinating question: as more and more data comes in from Mars, uh, which would be, what do you think the chances are that that we will find life on other planets? And 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 you could answer with regard to Mars or something else. I don't want to just say life on Mars because mm -hmm. obviously we know more about Mars than any other planet. I think. But what do you think the chances mm. are that we will find life on other planets? It's very, very difficult to say. I mean, you, you, you know, I can see the arguments in in both directions that life on Earth appears as if it's it's so finely tuned that perhaps you shouldn't expect it anywhere else. That it's so fluky that even in this giant universe, um, it's only likely to exist once. Uh, and yet it may actually be that life is so apparently finely tuned that, in fact, it's just impossible. So there's something that's driving you know, life to evolve in the environment that it's in. And that's why searching for life on other planets is important, so that we can do these tests, we can look, hopefully find life and see how it's adapting to its environment, see how Earth-like those environments are, or whether there's a whole much larger parameter space that opens up for life. And that's why looking for life on the nearest planet, Mars, is the first step and crucially important, because if we find life there, and I would say that I don't think it's looking very likely that um, we're going to find life on Mars anytime soon, um, but it may be possible that we can find the evidence that life once started on Mars in the very distant past, uh, presumably when Mars was a much warmer, wetter world, um, because we can see the evidence that there were once uh, rivers and lakes uh, on the surface of Mars. We can find the chemical sort of fossils of life there, then we can start answering this question about whether life has to be based on the same chemistry as it's based on uh, on the earth and I, I don't know if there's any topic that has fascinated the human intellect more than is there life on other planets I mean it, it's got to be in the top five most asked questions ever and it's it's one of those things that I think you know inspires science fiction it inspires an interest in science 
Uh, I, I, you know, the point you made earlier about uh, is the type of life on Earth the only type of life that's possible? I think that's the big question, because every time, every time I look into this, it there on this planet, I mean, folks are finding life everywhere. You know, under under the you know in the subsurface of the Earth in Antarctica, the deepest parts of the ocean. It's it's amazing how pervasive life is and, and the conditions under which life can can uh, exist and survive. Mm. It really is remarkable, and and I think that it really it really would open up some 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 big areas of research if indeed they found a new kind of life you know that was based on something other than what human life or or earth mm. life is, i think it probably i mean i think it'd probably be the greatest scientific discovery that's ever made yeah it, it really it really is amazing and and again it i i think it's i think it's uh fascinating that you also write about science fiction i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you about your books in a second here but 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 it just you know there is this there is this overlap, and and maybe maybe what it is about about science fiction is that it pushes it pushes your thoughts out there. You know, it it sort of uh, makes you imagine other worlds or other civilizations and other technologies. But mm. but I forget who who um, was it that said something like. Uh, a hundred years ago, the things that we're doing now would would seem like they came from another civilization or something like that. I mean, or another or another planet. I mean, it it really it really is uh, a fascinating part of science to to think that we are moving into realms that a century ago, probably some people probably would think was science fiction. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, Arthur C. Clarke has the, the, the famous quote about any sufficiently advanced civilization would have technology that's indistinguishable uh, from magic. Right, right. That's, from right, that's right. That's right. I think, really, I think that's what I was, I think that's what I was thinking of. Now, now with regard to uh, the, the, the big mysteries and, and we have you here and, and I know that, you know, you've written another another book called "The Big Questions for uh, of um, of the Universe," part of a I think a multi-volume <laughs> series. But right now, where where cosmology and physics sit, what what do you think are the are the big unanswered questions? And, and we you know we we touched upon them, but mm. I, I would like to get I would just like to get your sense of 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 the of the biggest mysteries and it's a little unfair mm. but but i'm taking advantage of having you on the show no no, no problem no i'm i'm, I'm going to say gravity i really am going to say gravity because i would love to know how gravity works you know we, we have no idea uh we can describe it uh mathematically you know newton gave us our first great uh description of gravity uh in 1687 that was published in the principia and then of course Einstein updated that um, in 1915 with a completely different view uh, and almost explained gravity by explaining it away, that it wasn't truly a force of nature uh, and that it was all to do with an invisible geometry and landscape in the universe. So the price of getting a better mathematical description for how gravity works and solving some problems with motion in the universe that Newtonian gravity couldn't do 
was that you had to believe that there was this extra warped dimension in the universe that you couldn't perceive directly, but you could see it in action when things fell through a gravitational field or when things were accelerated by a gravitational field. Yeah, and uh, and it, it, testing um, Einstein's description, general relativity, to greater and greater precision, and not just in strong, very very strong field environments that you, you that you get around these collapsed stars like neutron stars or around black holes, but going to the other end of the spectrum as well and testing in very very weak gravitational fields as well I'm very very interested to um, in all the experiments and the ideas that come out of those yeah that 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 is really that's that's great because if I remember correctly uh, the original mystery from from Newton was how these masses act across distances. Absolutely. And, and and I know that you've you've studied Newton and you've and you've done shows on Isaac Newton, so obviously you, you are a student of what of what he was about. But but that whole concept of action at a distance, it is and, and frankly, I don't know whether Einstein's theory actually answered the question. I mean, I mean, just in a pure, uh, uh, you know, a pure logical, common sense way, you have the sun and then you have the earth. Well, wh where's the force attracting the, those two bodies? How can they mm. act across such such great distances? So you see, so Newton never provided, as you say, Newton never provided the answer to to that question. And it was why, and he was criticised for not doing that. And there was some resistance to his ideas uh, of gravity because of that. Uh, some people thought he was letting in mystical forces, and they had at that time, uh, sort of late seventeenth century, they had pretty much started to fully reject uh, astrology and influences from space by that point. So, but Newton said, "I don't." He kind of said, I don't care, actually, whether you believe that this is right or wrong. The, the mathematics proves it. You know, this is, I can describe anything. I can explain anything and the movement through gravity um, with this math. So at some level, this has to be true. You have to accept this action at a distance. Well, Einstein said that, that the Earth moves around the sun because the sun is so massive it causes this warping of this invisible dimension of space. And the Earth, this other mass, is doing its own warping of space around it. And so it has to follow a, a, a path. There's a prescribed path that is dictated by the curvature of space created by um, the sun's gravity. And again, the maths works. So... Uh, but there's no real force involved in that. It's just you, your your planet Earth is moving along a, a path, an orbit, in the same way that a train moves along train tracks. It can't go anywhere else. And isn't is it that amazing that here we are in 2013 and we don't really understand gravity? And, and it, it's... It, you know, in many ways, maybe that's a. I, th I actually think maybe that's a good thing, but but we really haven't advanced the ball 
uh, in terms of understanding it, and this is this is a this is a scientific uh, a philosophical question, I think ultimately, because because it comes down to what's the role of science. I mean, mm. Newton and then Einstein, they both came up with models, formulas for describing the force, and Einstein is known for having a formula or theory that bet that more precisely described the force so we could describe the force but in terms of understanding why it is what it is that 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 appears to be one of those mysteries we may never solve as far as i can tell and that and and that's what the string theorists are trying to do they are trying to describe gravity in the form of a quantum force an exchange of of particles that they call gravitons right and that may be the right way to go, and that they may, you know, tomorrow come up with a correct formulation. Uh, one of the problems that we have is that it's very, very hard to see deviations from general relativity in the universe. And wherever you do see movements that don't make sense, then you've taken the conservative view and postulated dark matter yeah. and dark energy. Right to be the solutions to those problems. Right. So this is, the, this is why, for me, this is the greatest mystery. We may be on the right track with our postulations of dark matter and dark energy. Uh, in terms of dark energy, it's still pretty early in the game to know whether uh, we're on the right tracks or not with that. In terms of the dark matter, where we've been looking, at it, looking for it for decades, um, I, I admit I'm starting to grow somewhat sceptical. Uh, I await the uh, you know more experimental results from AMS and these other detection experiments around the world uh, with great anticipation. Nothing would make me happier if they find some dark matter tomorrow and we can crack this problem. But if it keeps dragging on, then I think perhaps it might be time to look at uh, gravitational theory again. And this is Philip Merton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're talking with Stuart Clark from the United Kingdom the author of many books including The Sun Kings, The Unexpected Tragedy of Richard Carrington, and The Tale of How Modern Astronomy Began. We're talking about the paradoxes, the mysteries that remain in cosmology. Now, I think it's, you know, when you think about it, Stuart, we, we are, we sort of come in a circle uh, because we started talking about dark matter and the recent data that was publicized as being new information mm -hmm. about uh, the uh, potential potential finding of something that may be dark matter, and as you say, that's that's it's just a new data that was also found. The same sort of data was found in 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 2008 by CERN's Pamela detector, but but dark matter is based upon a theory of gravity that we are sitting here talking about we don't understand it either and so and so you know the point you made in the beginning which i think is the, is the main point to be made here is that there's really two schools of thought on the dark matter problem which is that there may be missing mass or we may be in need of another gravitational theory <laughs> And, and or a different one, and and, yeah. it, and it really is, and and it really is, uh, you know, a remarkable sort of point in time here. Um, I, I'm I'm just wondering, 
uh, and I'm going to pivot a little bit here. I know you've done uh, quite a lot of work on the sun. I mean, mm -hmm. your 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 book, The Sun Kings, which is really good reading. I'd recommend it. Uh, it's it's one of those science books that even if you even if science books tend to tend to create glazes over your eyes, it's very readable and it's and it's a good it's a good educational experience too. Um, what what got you interested in the sun? Mm. It it started really very simply in the, way back when I was an undergraduate and I was uh, at college. I, we, we were told, of course, that uh, this astronomer, Richard Carrington, discovered solar flares. And I just thought, gosh, from a, from a human point of view, what must it feel like to discover something, to see something that no one has ever seen before? And so I became extremely interested in just the human reaction to discovery. And I started to look into the Richard Carrington story just to see if he had recorded any thoughts about what he, uh, what he felt when he saw this flare. And I found a, a lot of that. His writings are sort of full of his own personal uh, recollections. And he, he says he has a lovely uh, sort of quaintly Victorian turn of phrase that uh, he was sitting at the, the, the telescope one day and he was noting the positions of the, the sunspots uh, and he saw this, this, the flare take place, something completely unlike anything that had been described to occur on the sun uh, before. And he, he said that he became rather flurried by surprise. <laughs> um, and, I just, and, and it, it just started me um, really connecting and empathizing. And the more I learned about him as an astronomer, uh, the the more I learned about this sort of tragic fate that uh, that that he had and this national scandal that he was involved in, and I looked into more and more about the great solar storm of 1859 that was triggered by the solar flare, the giant solar flare that he saw, and the rippling effect that that had on what astronomy should be and what it should be used for. And whether instead of astronomy just being about charting the heavens for the aid of navigation, whether it should actually be about trying to understand the nature of the celestial objects and potentially how they can affect us here on Earth. Yeah. And I just this whole just massive story just opened up before my eyes, and I thought I have to write it, and I have to write it in this sort of fast-paced narrative non-fiction structure as well. Yeah, it, it it has a lot of it has a lot of characters in it, the the book, and and that and that's what makes it. I mean, it tells a good it tells a good story. And from from a scientific viewpoint, I thought it was it was uh, very uh, fascinating because it it says that astronomy really began with studying the sun and the sunspots and the the effect of the sunspots on on magnetic storms on on the Earth. And and uh, the different physical consequences on the Earth, and and that that to me is is as you said that is a lot of fun because you're not mm. you know because you're not looking at these galaxies you know billions of light years away, you're looking at the closest celestial object the the, the sun, and and understanding the, the multiple ways it can affect what we're doing here on Earth. Absolutely, I mean that you. Know, 
modern astronomy, as I sort of called it in that subtitle, and by which I kind of mean astrophysics, really, that, that's to me sort of effectively was kicked off by the the great solar storm of 1859, where two-thirds of the Earth were bathed in the aurora, uh, all the compasses on the Earth span uselessly, the telegraph network it went down spectacularly with uh, currents surging through the wires from the aurora. So pretty much at that point, all of global navigation and global communication, as it was at the time, stopped working. And the question, why has this happened? You know, that all pivoted on that one Richard Carrington observation of the solar flare the day before. So it's just like this kind of thrilling detective story yeah. that ended up turning astronomy completely on its head. It's definitely a good read. So, so the, the last question I really want to ask you, because, because you've, you've uh, studied this field and for a while you speak around the world, uh, where do you think cosmology is heading do you do you think we're going to need? I mean, you've already said it, but I, I'm just wondering: Do you think we're going to need a new uh, mega theory? Maybe that's the way to put it. Uh, or do you think string theory or or uh, the standard model mixed in with something with quantum mm. theory or something is 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 going to have the answers? Where do you, where do you think cosmology is heading? What I would like to see happen is that somehow we pull cosmology. Uh, and these sort of grand um, theories of everything, you know, kind of back from the brink and make them into testable hypotheses again. And, I mean, in cosmology, it is pretty hard to do that, really, because you've only got one universe. You can't rerun it again. Uh, so when you get data sets from the universe, you know, you're, you're kind of explaining them in hindsight. Um, but... New theories, new unification theories, perhaps, you know, trying to sort out string theory to make it, um, you know, f truly useful to us. Uh, this is where I would like to, to, to see it going. I hope, I really hope that we're not going to get trapped in this situation of sort of working on these mathematical edifices, which don't give us anything that we can test. Um, but the only way to get out of that problem is more data. And not just more data, uh, but better and better measurements so that we can truly see where, if and where, relativity breaks down. And that will give us ways to go. That will give us directions to, to, to mine and to go into. I, I also think that we are, I mean, my own view here is that we are entering a territory where something is going to give uh, you know, the Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, uh, and there's not a lot you need to know about that book other than it's one of the greatest scientific books of the 20th century. What Thomas Kuhn said in that book is that most of science is normal science where folks practice within the current model, and then every once in a while a revolutionary idea comes along and upsets the balance and a whole new way of thinking comes on the scene. And, and my own view is that, is that we are due for one of these big revolutions. Uh, it, who knows how or where or, or how long it's going to take. But, but the, you know, your book, The Sun Kings, uh, illustrates a lot of the problem with, with changing the mainstream or fighting against 
uh, the orthodox viewpoints. It's all you always go through this period. I don't care who it is. It, it seems mm. like somebody always has to go through this period where they're doubted, they're ridiculed, they're put down, and then what? Thirty, forty years later, they're heralded as you know messiahs or something. Um, mm. And 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 it it ha it happens time and time again, and and hopefully in this day and age we are going to accelerate the process because of the internet or and and just the, the fast way technology moves but but i'm optimistic that we are going to have to shake things up and come up with a new way of approaching things and i i i want to add here that only by identifying these mysteries of cosmology of physics such as gravity dark matter dark energy the faint sun faint young sun paradox only by identifying them discussing them i think will we be able to um, come up with an all-encompassing theory so so uh Stuart, i'd like to thank you very much for your time it's been an invigorating conversation i take it you have a website uh where people people want to know more about you Yes, thanks ever so much for inviting me on, Philip. And the website is is simply stuartclark.com. Well, that's well, that's nice and simple. And I also like to add here that uh, f for those who want to comment on any of these shows or suggest topics that they like to hear on this show, just email me at philipmeriton, M-E-R-E-T-O-N, at gmail.com. Once again, uh, this is Conversations Beyond Science Religion. Thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Meriton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com.